This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. That's the whole thing. Where are you going to stop? If you kill my mother, then you can kill many, many, many more people. Tom Mortier lives in Belgium, home to what are often described as the most liberal euthanasia laws in the world. Here, people of any age, even in some circumstances children, can be euthanized. In 2012, one of those was Tom's mother, a death he says should never have happened. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Perfect goodbye. Of eugenic impulse. Evaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control me. The police are obliged to charge me. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton, and you're listening to Better Off Dead. If there's an epicentre for anti-euthanasia sentiment, it's Belgium. Opponents ask, what kind of a place is this, where people voted to allow euthanasia for children, where twins can be granted the right to die because they're going blind? Allegations are made of a euthanasia culture that has become so uncaring, the elderly are regularly dispatched without their consent. The word murder is sometimes used. Yet, for all these claims, since its inception in 2002, there has been no procession of Belgians coming forward to complain about what the law has done to them. Which is why Tom Mortier's story is so powerful. In alleging the wrongful death of his mother, he has put a human face on the slippery slope. So I decided to go there to find out how Belgians feel about the euthanasia law. Godleva Latroya, Tom's mother, had been in treatment for depression since the age of 19, before Tom was born. She had sometimes considered suicide, and despite more than 40 years of therapy, her psychiatrist acknowledged that there was no cure for her condition. At the age of 64, she applied for the right to be euthanized. I received an email the 31st of January, an email from my mother, uh, stating that I am in an euthanasia procedure and I'm now waiting for the result. It was more or less like, okay, uh, there is a team who is investigating my question and she was waiting for the result. Godleva had applied for euthanasia four months earlier on the grounds of psychological distress. Under Belgian law, permission can only be granted if the patient is in a medically futile condition of constant and incurable physical or mental suffering that cannot be alleviated. She was with a psychiatrist for 20 years and this psychiatrist said to her that she would never be cured from her depressions anymore, so she would be having depressions for the rest of her life. But yeah, I mean, it goes up and it goes down. I mean... 
that's the whole deal with yeah, depression. The law dictates that when a request involving a non-terminal illness is made, two doctors, independent of each other, as well as a psychiatrist, make a rigorous investigation of that request and of all available alternative treatments. I mean, he has his team, he has a psychiatrist uh, who is really willing, I mean, She's uh, stating that she's really listening to people, like all the other psychiatrists aren't, re- aren't listening to people, but she's really listening to people. So after two conversations with my mother, okay, she said, my mother can be helped to die. On April 20th, three months after his mother's email, Tom received a letter from her written in the past tense, telling him that her euthanasia had been carried out the day before. Was there, was anyone else notified or was there a requirement for anyone to be notified? No, no, no. No. So we have an ultra-liberal uh, euthanasia law and yeah, many other countries, they're looking at our... Yeah. So it's uh, like, uh, yeah, the killer of my mother, he is the hero of absolute self-determination. It's uh, all about self-determination. This wasn't straightforward for anybody. When Tom was five, his father had committed suicide. To lose his mother this way brought back painful memories. This is my life. I'm now living with it. Um, I have been living with this since I was five years old. With all this pain and all this frustration and and not having a parent. I mean, like, for example, seeing the other kids uh, talking about their fathers. Well, you don't have a father. He committed suicide. And now it's just, well, it's a continuation of what I already experienced. That his mother could choose to die and that others would help her without telling him was to Tom inconceivable. Uh, when I received that uh, email, it was a tough situation. Um, although I knew, of course, that my mother was depressed, she had many friends. So she was still going everywhere. She was still going on holiday. and So, in fact, nobody even nor her neighbours, nor her best friend, they knew that she was going for that lethal injection. Tom's pain when I met him was palpable. His anger too. Are you going to give me the lethal injection? I'm asking you to. This is my absolute wish. I don't want you to inform my children. What are you going to say? You're asking me to respond to that? What are you going to say? As a human being, I would respond to you and say, I think your children need to know. Okay. Well, as a physician, I would say to this woman, although you haven't had contact for the last year, your children have the right to know your thoughts. And here lies one of the wellsprings of Tom's anger. He hadn't spoken to Godleva for a year before she died. Both he and his sister were estranged from their mother, which also meant she hadn't seen her grandchildren. When Godleva's email arrived in January, informing him that she had applied for euthanasia, Tom, aware that she had expressed suicidal thoughts before, but that they'd passed, decided not to reply. The news of her death three months later came as a deep shock. Under Belgian law, Godleva wasn't required to tell Tom or anyone if she didn't want to, though she did email him her intention, an email that went unanswered. Tolstoy wrote, All happy families are alike, 
each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Tom sees what happened with his mother not as a breakdown in his family, but as a breakdown in Belgian society brought about by euthanasia law. It's all about absolute self-determination. So if you have this legalization of euthanasia and, we're, and they're all looking at the Belgian euthanasia law, well, these are the facts. You don't have to be connected with people any longer. I can understand that it must be very hard for him not to have been informed of his mother's wish. This is Yves Desmet, former editor of the daily newspaper De Morgan. But his mother repeatedly expressed her wish for euthanasia. And in, in that case, um, it was reviewed even more fiercely because it was psychological, where you have also have the consent of a psychiatrist before you can perform the act. Eve has been reporting on Belgium's euthanasia law since its introduction in 2002. Was there public sympathy for him? I don't think so. I don't think so. Why not? There was, there was just as my son and my daughters have no right to impose euthanasia on me, they cannot stop me neither. It's my will, it's my decision, it's the individual that is in the centre of the euthanasia debate. And that's the big ideological, theological, ethical divide that is that it's the right of the individual to decide what happens with him that is put on the first place. Not the church, not the sons, not the family, not the doctor, nobody else but the individual. And if you can't live with that kind of, of philosophical preference for the individual, then you have a problem with euthanasia law. That's true. Public support for euthanasia in Belgium is phenomenally high. According to polling commissioned by The Economist in 2015, 85% of Belgians are in favour and only 5% against. Eve thinks this is not a picture the world sees. What, what bothers me also is that 10 years of euthanasia, with I think we're now about 10,000 cases in Belgium, that every time uh, a foreign journalist comes here, after four questions, the question, the name Tom Mortier falls. That's the only questionable case in 10 years. So the 10,000 who are never put in question, where there was no inquiry, where everybody was said, uh, the vast majority in every opinion poll of Belgian people who say euthanasia, fine with us. Now, there's one guy who says, yeah, but my mother was tricky. And that's the slippery slope. And that's the reason why euthanasia, ooh, we're never going to take it in, 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 in Australia. I find that very... Poor argumentation. I have uh, uh, four cows. I have a horse. Um, I have also a moose. I think you have them in Australia. Huh? A emus? moose? Yeah, emus. Oh, emus. 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 Yeah. You have an emu? Yeah, two. <laughs> Where do you get an emu from in Belgium? You can buy everything. Yeah. So it's. Uh... This wasn't a black market emu, was it, Arsene? No, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting when I went to meet Arsene Mully at his farm outside Bruges. Certainly not a beaming, white-haired man in shorts and T-shirt introducing me to his emus. Now retired, Arsene was formerly one of the most senior palliative care physicians in Belgium. What does a palliative care physician do? 
Well, it's taking care of uh, the dying face, the last face, um, taking care of whatever it, it means. Arsène's in his 70s. He trained in anaesthesia and emergency medicine, but the last 20 years of his life's work was in palliative care. There's a science also, palliative care. Eh? But besides of the science, is also the, the soul for palliative care, which ha has uh, caught me, so to say. Uniquely, the push for Belgium's euthanasia laws came from within palliative care. Remarkable because historically there's been antagonism towards euthanasia from palliative care physicians who see their role as helping people at the end of their life, not actively helping them to die. In Belgium too, it was a source of debate. There were tensions about that. Will the palliative care world be open enough and accept enough euthanasia? Yeah, I'm not doing palliative care to give deadly injections. So, so these this unhelpful thinkings of egos. There was a lot of exchange and bit by bit we changed to accepting, in a sense, the normality of this act as a helping act. Because then you can also end up in all kinds of discussions, is it a medical act or not a medical act? In palliative care, there are so many things which are not purely medical. If you, uh, for instance, sleep with the patient at night occasionally, that's also not a medical act. You have to do what you have to do. The embrace of euthanasia came from an acknowledgement amongst Belgium's palliative care physicians, some within Catholic hospitals, that even with the best care, not every dying patient could be helped. Medically speaking, yeah. what are the limits of palliative care? Medically speaking, um, it is often... Um, it, it may be pain, but also uncontrollable psychological symptoms uncontrollable existential suffering. Um, this is medical speaking. But of course, it, it's the patient. Palliative care is total anyway. It's about total life. It's life with a capital letter. And when a patient says that and you work with him, and not in the sense judging him, but in the sense van, of... Uh, dialoguing with him, if it then awakes that for him it's the best way to die with euthanasia, then it's very stupid not to uh, help him dying with euthanasia. Doctors and nurses struggled with the sight of dying patients being kept alive but with great suffering by the brutal miracles of modern medicine. Medical futility is a big problem in medicine in general, but in intensive care, certainly. It's uh, continuing to do what you know, although you feel that it has no utility anymore. And still you continue to do because you don't want to accept it for your own pride that it has no utility. You continue chemotherapy, you continue intensive care and so forth. It's a form of putting yourself above 
everything. Hmm? Overpride. For Arsene and many others, putting themselves above their patients' needs was unacceptable. What does it mean to a patient to know that one of the options they have is euthanasia? It's a relief. You see patients, they don't know what it's dying and they are afraid. So living together with them, when you can really say you will never be forced to live longer than than you want to live. It's a relief, it's a high relief. Arsene is a doctor, but there are times he sounds more like a philosopher. So, to me, this act of euthanasia, it's a sacral act. It's a difficult act which demands from me to go to the highest forces in me to follow the patient. It's a, but. It's an act from friend to friend. It's a love act. They don't, we don't have to never make a patient live longer than he wants at the end of life. It's a crime, so to say, to force a patient to live. Under Belgian law, any palliative care physician who doesn't agree with euthanasia can opt out, as long as they tell a patient requesting help at the outset that they will not do so. Others, though have come to understand euthanasia as an integral part of what they do. With the patient, it's often intertwined. I mean, he has a phase of palliative care, and after, or in this palliative care phase, he still wants to die. And then it's so intertwined that we believe very strongly that it should be locked together in one and the same medical science. Many palliative care physicians have this openness. There is more than half of the euthanasias are through palliative care or with the involvement of palliative care. It's a radical shift. I asked Arsène how Belgian palliative care had come to embrace euthanasia against its central philosophy, accepted the world over, that we shall neither prolong nor hasten death. I, I don't know... Anywhere in the world, I would ask why they do not accept euthanasia. Because certainly palliative care is a good thing, a very good thing, but certainly the, it does not solve the issue for all patients when they are ready to die. How can you say that you don't want to help if you are in palliative care? What do you do then with patients who want euthanasia, how can you say to a patient who suffers, uh, keep suffering, tomorrow it will be better. So why has Belgium developed a reputation as the slipperiest slope of all? Do the numbers suggest things are out of control? Far from it. Of all the people who die in Belgium, less than 2% do so by euthanasia, a percentage that has barely shifted since the laws began. Of those, well over 90% are people with terminal or chronic physical diseases. What's more, these numbers are reliable. This is a country that has analysed figures on euthanasia, dare I say it, to death. It has become a statistician's paradise, producing official reports, categories, subcategories. And it turns out that these figures have become grist to the mill of the international opponents of euthanasia. In all its detail, they believe they found the devil. Of all the people who died in Flanders, 
the most populated region of Belgium in 2013, 1.7% were in a category called life-ending acts without explicit request. It's this small number that has been turned into a big deal by anti-euthanasia campaigner Alex Schadenberg. Okay, so I've written a book about the evidence of what's happening in laws, and I, and I went through the data. So where we're seeing abuse as a law in both the Netherlands and Belgium, it's highly oriented towards people who are incompetent to make decisions for themselves. So what you see in the data, it's very recent data, and that data made it quite clear that about 1.7% of all the deaths were lives that were hastened without request. Alex, who is at pains to point out that his work is all based on original studies done by Belgian and Dutch researchers, estimates the total number of unrequested deaths in Belgium at about 1,000. For my clarification, is request a formal term within these laws, or when you say by request, are you suggesting that people are just being dispatched without their even knowing they're going to be dispatched? A fair number of them were, were certainly dispatched without knowing, if you want to say it that way, mm. without knowing they were going to be dispatched. And, and how, and they, how can you be, sh- be sure of that from that data? So when you're showing, and a study is showing to you that 1.7% of all deaths are caused without request, and this is the... The data showing they're usually in a hospital, they're usually incompetent to make decisions for themselves, and they're on average about age 80. You have to shake your head a bit and read this, because you see, this isn't my data. I didn't do the study. Alex's charge is that the patients who die like this are the hidden victims of a euthanasia law that spawned an uncaring culture. Euthanasia has become commonplace, but what do you do with the person who looks like their life has no value? They're laying there, they're incompetent, but they've never asked for this. There's no, there's no proof of asking for it. There's no signed document. There's nothing. So, so is it your assertion that those thousand deaths or the majority of them were in effect a murder because they were not deaths that anyone had consented to? Uh, murder, manslaughter, it depends on how you define it in the law. Yes, they are. Murder, manslaughter. These are serious allegations. Professor Jan Bernheim is one of the architects of Belgium's euthanasia law and a respected researcher. He knows very well the studies to which Alex is referring and initiated research to investigate in detail the controversial deaths without explicit request. His team even scrutinised the doctor's handwritten notes in the box at the end of the questionnaire about their patients' deaths, their scribbled clarifications of intention. When we look at this closely, then first, in, I think it was one third of the cases, there was a request. However, the patient was beyond being able to repeat that request because he was too far gone. He was comatose or was was no longer in a state to restate his request to have his life ended. And therefore, the doctor ticked, no, this was not at the patient's repeated request. The next thing is that uh, if you look at the doses that were given there, again, you find that they were not, those were not life endings. Those were doses that were given to control symptoms like agitation of the patient or possibly uh, pain 
Uh, I don't quite understand if they're called life-ending acts, but they're not life-ending. How how do those well, they, things happen? They, they're, they're called because the doctor ticked the box. I gave medication with the intention to shorten the patient's life. Uh, the intention of the doctor was not to end life. The intention was to treat the symptoms, and probably that's what they did. However, because of the very strict constraint labeling of the question, he did tick, I did administer drugs with the intention, and this was not at the explicit request. So were doctors doing something underhanded here? No. When you then look at those cases which were without explicit requests, if you analyze uh, the details uh, of the clinical process which uh, took place, then you see that those were not euthanasia or they were not life-ending. Namely, they were the doses given were really the same as with palliative sedation. To Jan, this is not something devious, as Alex is suggesting. It is what doctors should be doing. Every good doctor should do this, right? That's not upon request of the patient because he can't anymore or for whatever reason. So the, the point is, Belgian doctors do that too, except they get, every, every several years, they get a, a, a form to, um, uh, a survey to tick, and where they are asked, um, uh, was it, did you give drugs that uh, could um, shorten the patient's survival? Yes. Was it your intention to do that, they say yes. And uh, was it at the request? They say no. So, you know, so this is absolutely dramatic. They, made a, they make a terrible fuss about this. But this is, of course, simply good practice. Alex Schadenberg has taken his insinuations of murder amongst Belgium's doctors around the world, including to his home country of Canada, as their courts grappled with the question of whether an assisted dying law could ever be safe. Here, his arguments came apart under scrutiny. There was no body of evidence supporting the anti-euthanasia lobby's claims of a slippery slope in Belgium. The Canadian Supreme Court agreed as much in its unanimous 2015 decision, paving the way for an assisted dying law in that country. So how did Alex Schadenberg reach his conclusions? I asked the Dean of the University of Tasmania's Law School, Margaret Odlovsky, an independent legal academic who's extensively studied end-of-life practices, to examine his claims. What is absolutely essential is to go back to the sources of the actual peer-reviewed literature that he is um, purporting to, to analyse. And, you know, through a systematic review of that, what I could see coming through quite clearly is his very selective use of material um, so deliberately, for example, you know, leaving out parts of a quote that don't suit the argument that he's, he wants to make about, for example, um, slippery slopes. It's a tactic as old as the hills, to put your research forward as scientific while in fact leaving out the bits that don't suit your argument. Margaret cites an example, a 2009 article quoted by Alex from the New England Journal of Medicine. So he's quoting from Bilson, but... 
He quotes bits that suit his argument where Bilson and others had written, we found that the enactment of the Belgian euthanasia law was followed by an increase in all types of medical end-of-life practices. Um, But critically, what he omits is with the exception of the use of lethal drugs without the patient's explicit request. And that's a an absolutely integral part of the argument, also an omitted part of what was a, a paragraph that he sort of quoted some of. Bilson and others wrote, no shift towards the use of life-ending drugs in vulnerable patient groups was observed. So, mm, it, Which is the opposite of what Schadenberg suggested. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just staggering that he can come to a completely opposite conclusion from that um, body of research. Did you find more than one example of this in the yes, book? Yes, no, I found an, a number of examples where... He, he takes an article, you know, at one level, but then doesn't look at the the qualifying comments or the caveats that have been given or the the possible other explanations. He, he just in terms of painting an overall picture, would you call these significant? Look, I emissions? would, I would, and my concern is that his work, as far as I know, isn't you know a peer reviewed work. To get journal articles published, there is a rigorous peer review process. Um, so I'm much more inclined to you know, accept the the validity of the, you know, half a dozen or so articles that are in very reputable journals, um, New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet and so on. And, you know, the ones that have actually done the work um, in, in the Netherlands and in Belgium. Overwhelmingly, the message they give is that it's not an uncontrollable practice, to the contrary, that you know, it seems actually incredibly well regulated and that there has been a diminution in cases of unrequested um, euthanasia or, you know, assistance without an explicit request. For doctors who work in Belgium, the accusations of Alex Schadenberg and others cut deep. Luke Prout, 69, is a retired oncologist who's now part of a specialist team that deals with non-terminal euthanasia requests. Almost the first thing he said when I met him was, you think we're all murderers. I asked, is that what he really thought? Yeah, sometimes, yeah, some conservative parts of the world certainly see it as murderers. And how does that make you feel? Badly, because it isn't true. Our act is so progressive, so well written. The conditions are well stated. We know the requirements, the whole procedure. So if you follow that, you know uh, that it's about a patient in a terrible situation, even if he is not terminally They are in such a terrible condition that uh, euthanasia for them is really a salvation. Why do you think that people in other parts of the world have, have got that wrong? What is it that they're not seeing? Well, of course, we have done through a whole process. They haven't. Uh, we are speaking about euthanasia in this country during more than 30 years now. For example, in the beginning, there was a great opposition even for euthanasia and terminally ill patients. And there was an opposition from the palliative care physicians. But nowadays we see that it is accepted that in terminal ill, for example, cancer patients, euthanasia is 
part of palliative care. And we see that more and more uh, palliative care f- uh, physicians are involved in that process. Does it upset you when other people may think that you and your colleagues do not think enough about the act of euthanasia? Um, yes, because if I'm speaking for the physicians here in Belgium, that uh, certainly when we're talking about non-terminal ill patients, uh, you take your time for each case. It is much more than an act of euthanasia. You really try to understand the unbearable suffering of the patients. And I think that's important here. Euthanasia for non-terminally ill patients was almost unknown in the early years of the law. But patients complained that they were being unfairly stigmatised. Psychological suffering, they argued, could be just as unbearable as physical pain. Like cancer patients, they were subjected to futile treatments that diminished their quality of life. Though few in number, it is these cases that have given anti-euthanasia campaigners fertile ground in which to sow the seeds of doubt. This is British academic and historian Kevin Newell addressing an anti-euthanasia conference in Adelaide. If you want to see the future of institutionalising a culture of assisted suicide. Let's look at what happened in Belgium. Let's look at the fact that the two 45-year-old twins were given uh, euthanasia because they were going blind and they did not want to live any further. The story of the twins going blind is a favourite of the anti-euthanasia lobby, held up as a shining example of a society that has completely lost its moral compass. Not only did they not have a terminal illness, but so the story goes... They had to doctor shop for two years before they could find one who would do the deed. As with all these cases, the full story turns out to be infinitely more complex. Mark and Eddie Verbessem, both deaf since birth, found themselves in their mid-40s faced with a suite of severe medical problems, including the onset of blindness. Faced with a life where they would be institutionalised, cut off from the world and unable to work and live together, they requested euthanasia. Contrary to the stories, they didn't spend two years doctor shopping. The family's long-time GP, who accepted the twins' request, swore as much in evidence accepted by the Canadian Supreme Court. And what these stories never mention is that while the twins' parents and siblings tried to dissuade the boys, they ultimately supported their request to be euthanized, an act of understanding and compassion which says more about the twins' suffering than any medical report ever could. The Verbessum family rarely speak publicly about their son's euthanasias. When we contacted them, they preferred not to be interviewed, but did want it known that they felt deeply distressed at how the twins' deaths were being represented as a law gone wrong. They believe in the law, they said, and were grateful for the serene and peaceful deaths it gave Mark and Eddie. been living with this since I was five years old. So with all this pain and all this frustration and, and not having... No matter which side of the euthanasia debate you're on, it's impossible not to be moved by Tom Mortier's story. The man whose depressed mother legally ended her life and he had no say in it. How hard is it? Well, <laughs> it's really this physician who did this. Um, okay, he eliminated 
the problem with my mother, but he created another problem with me. The physician Tom is referring to is Dr. Wim Distelmans, a champion of the individual's right to choose and a charismatic leading light of the euthanasia medical community. Well, I think my mother went to a lecture of Distelmans, uh, so the physician who killed my mother. Um, he's giving lectures everywhere in, in Flanders, like um, for the free humanists and talking about euthanasia and the right to die. Tom believes that Wim encouraged his mother to die. I put this to the former editor of De Morgan, Yves Desmet. Uh, one of Tom's central beliefs is that a charismatic, powerful doctor like Professor Distelman's... Can talk people into their deaths. Yeah, talk to be, persuaded his mother to a course that she, of euthanasia. I, 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 I know Distelman's personally. I know him for more than 10 years. I know a lot of his cases. I spoke with a lot of his patients. If someone is reticent about performing euthanasia, it's he. Uh, Tom makes him look like uh, a guy who's waving around with his needles to who's next, who's next. That is really, that's not the case. And that, would that be the case, Distelmans would have long been in jail. Uh, instead, he's hailed by the whole Belgian society. He has won numerous prizes. He's one of the most respected intellectuals and doctors in Belgium. You may so have... So the fact that one son has very lot psychological difficulties with the death of his mother from whom he was estranged, I can understand that. I can even respect that. But that gives him no right to defamate a doctor who has never been accused of anything, who has never been convicted, and who is, I think, the most controlled and the most regarded doctor in all Belgium. It is the very respect accorded to Distelmans that Tom believes highlights what is wrong with the system. For me, from my point of view, my personal point of view, I find this completely insanity. But of course, the pro-Ethanasia lobby, they created for their purposes a very good thing, of course. So. The prize-winning uh, physician who is constantly winning prizes in Belgium. He is the chairman of the of the euthanasia commission. He's killing many people, so he's reporting to his own commission, and no report has ever been sent to the prosecutor. Someone has to tell me if this is okay or not. As chair of the Federal Control and Evaluation Commission, Wim Dustermans is one of a group of 16 reviewing euthanasia deaths to ensure that doctors have complied with the law. His committee colleague, lawyer Jacqueline Herriman, explains that the commission is made up of... Eight doctors, four lawyers and four people coming from the society. Much more, we have experience of incurable patients. This commission well, is nominated by the government. When the parliament has to review the nominations, uh, it has to be attentive to uh, respect uh, a balance between different conceptions. Uh, so it's not a question that you are going to find in the uh, 16 members of this commission, all people who agree with euthanasia. I asked Jacqueline what happens when the commission reviews a controversial case. If one member thinks that there is a problem with one decoration, he has to 
put that case open to the meeting and to uh, to say, well, I, I disagree. I think that uh, I'm not uh, comfortable with, uh, for example, the diagnosis, the prognosis. So uh, there is no answer about uh, the suffering and so on. Uh, so uh, the task of the member of the commission uh, is very, very heavy. If we think, if we arrive to uh, the conclusion that uh, the main conditions are not fulfilled. We have to take the decision by two-thirds majority to send the file to the prosecutor. Wim de Stumann's handling of Godleva Latroya's case was approved by the Commission. Details that have since come to light about it include that he met with Godleva at least six times in the six months before she died and that more than one psychiatrist and the family priest were also closely involved in her case. Two weeks before her death, Distelman's asked if she would call her children. Godleva, as was her legal right, declined. Wim Distelmans did not accept our invitation to be interviewed for this podcast. I spoke instead to one of the psychiatrists who worked with him on Godleva's case, Lever Timpont. Can I talk briefly about Tom Mortier, um, who I spoke to earlier this year, who uh, believes that his mother did not truly want to die and that she was encouraged to euthanasia by uh, Professor uh, Distelman, who, in Tom's words, uh, was was blinded by the tunnel vision of her madness. And I know you sat in a meeting where Tom brought his grievances to Dr. Distelman. Do you understand Tom Mortier's anger? Um, I want to speak, first of all, more general. Mm-hmm. That... Uh, Many patients come from a dysfunctional family with a lot of problems since years and years. And it's very difficult at the end of, of life to, to make bridges or, how can we say, to herstellen, to repair, to re- repair. repair the, the relations. Sometimes we cannot. We always try very hard. But as I said before, some patients have very good reasons to stop the, the attempt to, to um, make the bridges between family members. So that's much important to know. And secondly, we never, as you said, we never promote euthanasia. You said something in the beginning that Tom Mortier said that Professor Destelmans I don't know. En- encouraged, persuaded. Yes, encouraged. We never encourage euthanasia. Never. We always encourage to stay alive. But we accept when the patient said it's enough. And then we try to help them to die in a, a good way. Tom's story is being used around the world as the ultimate cautionary tale about the slippery slope of euthanasia laws in Belgium. When I met him, he was one of the featured speakers at an anti-euthanasia convention in Adelaide. There's no doubting the pain that he feels. His is a tragic family history, and it is impossible not to feel great sympathy for him. But is it a true reflection of a law and a society gone wrong? 
Few in his own country support that view, not politicians, the media, the medical profession or the public. They see what happened as his mother's right under law to have sought an end to her lifelong suffering. Perhaps most tellingly, his own family doesn't support him either. Tom's sister, who lives in Africa, did reply to Godleva's email announcing her intention to seek euthanasia, saying that, even though it hurt her, she would respect her mother's decision. She has not joined Tom in his complaint. For journalist and editor Yves Desmet, the ugly picture painted of euthanasia in Belgium is hard to take. It's very confronting for us to see the way and, and, and the, the, the very harsh way uh, foreigners look at euthanasia practice in Belgium. Like the vast majority of Belgians, he sees no sign of the slippery slope. We had 10 years of, of euthanasia practice which has to be, every case has to be reported. Every case has to be, um, there are three doctors who have to give their yes before it is done. It is looked at after, is it, was it done properly? It has to say something that I think with one or two exceptions, that of the thousands and thousands and thousands of cases we had in those 10 years, only one or two complaints were ever made. If there was a slippery slope, or if there was an abuse of the possibility, we would have long heard about it, I think. That's it's impossible that thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of cases, which we already had in those 10 years, would all go unreported if there were cases of abuse. I don't believe them. It's worth noting that some months after our interview, Dr. Mark Van Huey became the first doctor to be sent for prosecution by the Federal Control and Evaluation Commission. His case will be heard in 2016, and regardless of the result, it's a reminder to all Belgian doctors about the seriousness of their law. Though Eve rejects the slippery slope, he understands that at the furthest reaches of the law, there will always be debate. The debate now is where you reach the boundaries. For example... Uh, nobody has a point against giving euthanasia to a physically um, suffering person. But what do you do when somebody is suffering psychologically? That's an all other uh, kind of thing. It's a good question, and for me, it led to another. The most confronting of this whole journey and the focus of our next episode. How can doctors know enough about the human brain to make life and death decisions? If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the waves Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. 
Angels lighting on your shoulder East and west, north and south Ooh. Ooh. Coming for the carry me away